values food lovers around the globe. The restaurants are on the menu with N and either A. And these have extra healthy steak or some made IT masters anime. It's chicken and two. I would begin a discussion of ingredients from around the world raised to the whole level of intelligence. We're going to be talking to Elizabeth Feynman, who's in Germany, um, and uh, she has a book out that has an interesting title. Let's go to the end of this example. It's called Let's Go Nuts. Let's listen to Charles Spencer. We're, we're talking to Estelle Schweizer, and her book is called Let's Go Nuts, which is a very clever title. Um, welcome to On the Menu, Estelle. Is it Estella or Estelle? Um, it, it depends uh, as you like it. It's um, written on my passport. It's Estella, but I love Estelle okay. also very, very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful book as well. Um, yes. Um, I, I just have to mention before we even go into it um, that everything about this is a first-class book. I mean, even the pages, the paper is printed on is is thick and and fine, and uh, the 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 photography. Tell us about your photographer. The photography is absolutely splendid. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud to collaborate with this photographer, which is Winfried Heinze, who is also known in food photography, but also in interiors. And he started with model photography years before. So he's very famous, and I'm very, very glad to collaborate with him and his wife, who does the decoration and the, how do you say, styling, the food styling. The food styling, so, right. Um, yeah. And so we got yeah. this brilliant photos which really invite to uh, to cook after them oh well it's a wonderful book and uh, right on the mark for what's trending now um uh, listeners estella is a, um, a, a nutritionist um a vegan nutritionist and a certified plant-based chef and estella you ran a vegan cafe for a number of years as well and you've worked as recipe and product developer, but your current gig is um, classes in uh, Freiburg, your home, where you're living now, home base, I guess, Germany. Um, and uh, you can tell this book is just very thorough, and 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 you can you can, readers of this book are going to feel empowered to not only execute these incredibly um, inventive dishes, um, but also to, to develop their own creativity, which you encourage. Um, exactly. This is what, yeah. Go ahead. This is what I always try to encourage when working with people. This started before I was running the cafe. This, this continued when running the cafe and giving um, cooking classes and baking classes. And it um, continues now when sometimes giving kind of lessons and classes on Instagram, on Instagram TV. I really want to encourage people to, um, to, 
refined their own creativity when it comes to natural ingredients like um, cereals, um, legumes, um, vegetables, fruits, herbs, salads, and for sure nuts and seeds. Yeah. Now, tell me about this this uh, company that you work for. Is it a school, a company? What is it? Um, I'm, I'm working part-time for Fair Food Freiburg, which is a company who's trading with nuts. And, That's the one um, I was the interested fair, in. Yeah, exactly. No, I didn't, this, I didn't um, understand fair, what it did. What, what does it do? Yeah, Fair Food, fair food does fair trading. That means we are, we are cooperating with um, producers in countries of the global south and um, try to um, um, collaborate with them in a way that they get the most out of what they are producing. So nuts, the, the oh. best prices on the market and direct trade connections and really helping them to building up their um, productions in those countries, in those, in yeah, where they are living. Yeah, yeah you have in your... In your book, you, you talk about that uh, when you're talking about yeah. um, the, the processing the nuts where they're grown, which is some an issue I never even had thought of um, because so many people send, the growers will send their product to Asia for the cheap labor, and it adds yeah. on to the, yeah. And yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, the problem is concerning, for example, if we take cashews, for the example, we have 60% of the worldwide wide eaten cashews come from African countries. But just 5% of those cashews growing in Africa are processed and, and worked um, um, to our eatable, um, to an eatable, um, how do you say, um, Condition. Uh, moment, Condition. Not moment. Yeah, <laughs> right. They it, need to be yeah. processed, um, in other words. Exactly, and um, and ninety five percent of the of those cashews um, grown and uh, yeah grown and um, um, coming from Africa are just are just sent to um, Indian Asian countries to get peeled and processed there to, to cheaper conditions which means in the end that also the the price who or the money who's flowing back to those producers in Africa is not as much as it could be and in general this is this is a an example we have for cashews but also con, um, concerns other nuts and it also concerns all the ingredients all the foods we are eating and all the goods we are in fact we are buying it's the same for for um for clothes for shoes we really have oh, to yeah. be aware where our um our goods come from and how they are processed in a way yeah and chocolate and coffee exactly. all of that exactly yeah. bananas yeah exactly. and yeah. in my book it's it's about nuts, and I um, I describe those um, those structures um, with the example of the nuts. But in fact, I want to try to sensibilize people to um, to be aware about their living and about their influence in our worldwide society. And there's been I just I just read sadly that. Um, 
there are all these, I don't know how many uh, thousands of pounds of almonds in California. Yeah, they're they're going nowhere. Um, California is the largest almond producing um, state, I guess you'd say, uh, source in the world. And some screw up with the supply chain and, and boats for during the pandemic resulted in all these unclaimed produce grown, but unclaimed almonds. And I want to throw in there, you know, because sustainability is another one of your issues. Uh, there are very high, almonds are very high maintenance because they require quite a deal, a lot of water um, to produce. Yeah. Uh, give give us your thoughts on this latest tragedy with almonds the problem is not just the water they they need but um when it comes to because you have almond trees for example in italy and palestine who which are not not drinking i say drinking the same amount of water and um which are typical for those regions since ever and ever. And I think the same thing is also true for California. We have almond trees in California. The problem is always when people try to scale up things in incredible amounts and then Mm -hmm. it gets a problem. And with those almond trees, it's the problem that they need a lot of water because, because we as a society scale up things and don't let natural um yeah natural surroundings um survive and the other the other thing is um concerning the bees um oh, yeah. the, those large plantains don't allow to make fertilization in a natural process so um it needs a lot of bees who are transported to those almond trees to yeah to do their work oh, and this is kind of it's not natural anymore and this is more the problem than having almond trees in california i think almond trees in california is quite normal but when it comes to industrial production it gets difficult yeah. right now the thing the thing that amazed us estella is how many how many of the things that we know as nuts aren't really nuts at all <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, let me explain that, that there is a section of this book called yeah. Nut Profiles in which you can get this information that Peter's talking about, about what's a real yeah. nut and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. And this, this, those nut profiles are kind of little um, pedagogic, how do you say, pedagogic? No, peda, 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 pedagogic. Um, Pedagogic. Pedagogic. <laughs> yeah. I wanted. Yeah, good I word. wanted to give within, within the, within the just the um, cooking processes and the uh, yeah because our food has a lot of to do with our environment and in fact with our health and to making the circle round is very important and to understand what why it comes all together why it can't be just. Um, just uh, regarded separately, this is very important in my opinion. Now, you, you are a nutritionist, and one of the things that's pushing uh, nuts into the fore, 
front of our minds at this point is their nutritional profile, that they're very rich in all kinds of things. But you handle something, I think, with balance, very interesting, and I didn't know quite how this worked. I've always been told um, that they're nutritious, but you should only consume a, a very small number, like a handful at a time, because yeah. they're also highly caloric. And you explain why that's not necessarily the whole story. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, okay. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's, they are highly caloric, this is right, because they contain a lot of fatty acids. But um, it's not a problem in general to eat more than this handful, which is about um, 30 to, to 40 grams or I think around half a cup or anything like that. But um, nuts are hard to digest for our body because of the complex structure they bring. And so eating 100 to 200 grams of nuts every day could just be not healthy for our intestines and could be too heavy to digest every day, as we should not eat large amounts of olive oil or um, coconut oil or also not large amounts of sugar and not too much of um, carbohydrates kind of um, rice and pasta. So every, I think every, every, um, um, everything we eat should be in a, in a right balance. Right. And um, foods with, like vegetables and herbs and salads and fruit, which contain a lot of water, can be eaten in larger amounts without um, without being too hard to digest, and and um, foods which are very concentrated in a way need to be eaten in in smaller amounts just to give our body the chance to really digest them properly and um, take out the best our body can take out, and this is why we should just consider not to eat too much nuts in a time but it's not kind of dangerous to sometimes we have kind of cravings and then we eat 200 grams of cashews in <laughs> at once and this is fine there's no problem going with that and um yeah but in further times people always were told that they should not eat too much nuts because they are so fatty and they may kind of um sick or um yeah are not healthy because of that, and this is not true. The complex structure and the unsaturated fatty acids they have, they balance our metabolism in several ways. They, they balance the fatty metabolism or the fat metabolism. Um, they moderate the cholesterol levels in our body. They protect our vessels, and they also balance the um, sugar metabolism, so they prevent diabetes and things like that. So this is very interesting about about nuts and about their potential for our body and our brain. Now, the, the other thing that's kind of important to, to note is they taste good. Yes, this is right. <laughs> yeah, this is, in fact, this is the culinary aspect I, um, I mentioned or I, I show up in the book 
they are not needed to be eaten or used in large quantities, but they can kind of be used like like herbs and spices because they can pimp up and um yeah uh, make make something better out of your vegetables out of your salads out of the dishes you have they can yeah be used like like spices you seem to be to favor caches more than others um, in your nut profiles uh, and in your recipes what is it about cashews that you like so much? Um, I think it's not that I use cashews more than others in my in my recipes, but um, cashews for some reasons can be used easily. For example, to make um, kind of yogurt and milk and um, cut and cheese and mozzarella out of them because they are very neutral neutral concerning their taste and they are easy to uh, to process because they have a very smart structure for that. You, you, you just need to soak them for several hours and then you can mix them up and, and blend them and have a very creamy and smart structure. This is not the same for all the other nuts. And all the other nuts, in addition, have a, have a more intense taste. The only, ex- mm-hmm. the only exception is almonds. Almonds are also very sweet, but they have another structure um, concerning or compared to cashews. And um, kind of walnuts and brazil nuts and pecans. And, yeah, they they also bring their individual taste and can't – cashews you can use in a kind of um, hidden way. You You don't taste them immediately. And when you use all the other nuts, you always have a very special taste and you immediately realize, okay, this is with walnuts or this is hazelnuts or this tastes like almonds. And this is different with cashews. So it's, yeah, cashews are easy in the kitchen, easy to... Yeah, you have have recipes that uh, are really important to vegans, such as um, uh, the the nut milks and um, nut milk products and and, uh, nut dressings and marinades and sauces and um, I mean it's very thorough and it's very as I say I mean the recipes are pretty stunning in their creativity Um, I mean I've already earmarked we're not vegan but I've already earmarked a number of them that that I really um, am dying to make Um, okay (laughs) yeah now let's you organize your recipes according to the season could we yeah. run through like um, if we take spring? Um, yeah. What what comes to your mind? Um, what 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 kind of recipes do you feature? What kind of recipes? When I think about spring, first comes to my mind that we, in fact, and this is very important. I I am running. This is perhaps the the explanation. I'm running the recipes um, directed or or organized by seasons because the mainly part in the book is not just to have um, kind of luxury ingredients like nuts, but seasonal vegetables and fruits. Because the basic of our daily eating should be vegetables, fruits, cereals, and um, kind of lentils, chickpeas, and things like that to get our, to get the, how do you say, the our calories in and, um and eating climate friendly in a way. This is 
this is for me the most important thing. And then, so I think in vegetables, fruits, and this basic ingredients. And when I think about springtime, I firstly think about herbs and everything which grows green and fresh, because in springtime we have leftovers from winter. We have roots um, and cabbage, and then we have fresh herbs and fresh kind of um, um, sprouting vegetables, sprouting salads, and things like asparagus and things like that. And then I try when I when I try about making this culinary interesting, I try to combine those things we have from winter, kind of roots, kind of beet and carrots and potatoes and cabbage, combining those with the fresh ingredients of springtime and then giving a crunch or a creamy consistency with kind of nut butters or nuts. And um, for example, in my book, I have to, to look into it. We have this springtime quiche, which has a... Um, which has a I love that. I hit on that recipe right away. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, it has a it has a it has a crust made out of seeds with pumpkin seeds in it and sesame seeds, and then I made a filling, in fact, with fresh and young spinach and kind of fennel because fennel is also one of those vegetables which rest from winter time or which you can buy in springtime regularly. And then we have a kind of a, the, the, the cream, it's made out of cashew, cashew butter and water and some starch to get it thickened. And it's, um, it's seasoned with, I think, cucumber and, yeah, some other spices in it. And it just have here the, the beet soup, red beet soup, which is exactly what I said. We have leftovers. Um, leftovers from winter time, so I have these beet roots, and then I make a soup which is, which is, um, um, how do you say, uh, 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 pimped up with horseradish and fresh apples and some crunchy roasted sunflower seeds and herbs on the topping. And, oh, celery is in there, too, because celery is also one of the ingredients you get in springtime. And the next one I see here is um, little radishes. And um, oh, I that one. The greens Another one from, I like. Yeah. Yeah, the radishes. I use the greens always. Um, sometimes I use it to make a salad out of it, or I use it like spinach leaves and fry it in the pan just a little bit. And, um, yeah. And um, yeah, we have this a salad, a springtime salad with uh, kohlrabi, which is quite common in Germany. I don't know if, if it's kohlrabi so common in the U.S., but in Germany you can oh, always yes. buy kohlrabi. Yeah, you have. Kohlrabi. I never know what to do with kohlrabi. Actually, it's so peculiar looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I look. I was looking up the word in English, but it doesn't exist. It's just a German expression for a for a vegetable. Um, and I, what, kohlrabi? Yeah, kohlrabi? Exactly. kohlrabi? Oh, no, we have kohlrabi. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think but so, called, yeah. But it's called yeah. kohlrabi. What I think she's saying is it's called kohlrabi in, in English as well as in German. Yeah, I okay. think it's the same word, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. The other yeah, thing that caught my eye was the, this roasted beets with lentil and apple salad. I'm making that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is great. 
I mean, it just goes on and on. I keep, every time I turn a page, I find a new recipe that I'm going to try and love uh, and work with the seasons. Um, And you even have a section where you take the readers into your own pantry. And and I've not seen that in a cookbook before, where your favorite everything is. You put it all out there. (laughs) So... Um, yeah. Now, I have an an offbeat question that I I'm going to ask you before we get back to the the book is, why do so many people have nut allergies? Um, it's not so many people who have nut allergies. When you are when you're really consulting the statistics, it's just about two to four percent of the population who really have a nut allergy. That means they have an allergic reaction, which is, per definition, um, really tragic. A lot of people don't digest or don't um, or realize when they eat one or the other kind of nuts that they they are mouth. Yeah, I guess it's a tree nuts is the real bad thing. Exactly. So and this is not an allergy. This is just a reaction, and sometimes it's just because of hazelnuts, and other people don't or can't eat walnuts. And um, another group is it's kind of reacting to peanuts in a way that they just realize something different in their mouth. And um, so this is interesting because it's just describing, and we have this with other ingredients or with other foods also, People always have, or it's individual how how you react. Some people can't eat, for example, onions because of that, or or um, garlic, or pepper, or chili. So cilantro and, is another one, I guess. Yeah, this is exactly. And um, and when it comes really to an allergy, you can't eat because you really get a copper re- reaction, and you need um, you need sur- not surgery, but yeah, you need in medical care. This when it is a really allergic reaction, and what I what I um meant or what I want to mention, which is kind of interesting, sometimes people react in this slight or how do you say um light way because of a reaction in their mouth to hazelnuts, for example. But that just just means that they can't eat or they they perhaps should not eat hazelnuts, but they can eat almonds, they can eat cashews, they can eat coconut, they can eat pecans. And and this is very interesting to mention because they can benefit from all the other nuts um, from the family in their nutrition and also for their health and for their bodies. And yeah, this is what I what I want to mention when it comes to allergies. Okay. Well, that's good to know because it seems every label yeah. I read will tell you whether or not this, the food you're eating was processed in a facility that also processes nuts, you know. So, yeah. But, well, I, I think this is a super-duper book, and um, it's, you should be very proud of this, Estella. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, I I, I'm just amazed that some of these... I, I get a lot of cookbooks, but I'm really amazed at the originality, the innovation in yours. And you even get the source of macadamia nuts right. <laughs> Everybody thinks they come from Hawaii, but they really come from Australia. 
<laughs> we've been yeah, on a, right. yeah, we've been in academia, not uh, uh, what do we call it? Rather, is a uh, um, a farm or an orchard or what? No, I think I think we called it more like an orchard. Okay, they're, so they're, they're wonderful, but but expensive. I mean, I once did a stuffed yeah. turkey, and the stuffing was macadamia nuts, and it cost me more for the, the stuffing than it did for the whole other meal, the rest of the meal. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can leave the turkey living and just eat the macadamia nut stuffing. Exactly. <laughs> well, anyhow, listeners, the, what we're, we're doing is talking. Would be good for the climate and would be good for the turkey. <laughs> Yeah. Estella Schweizer, um and, and her book, Let's Go Nuts, uh, subtitled 80 Vegan Recipes with Nuts and Seeds. And I'll tell you, these recipes are worth getting a hold of because they're, they're really genius. Um, I thank you for talking to us, Estella, and I wish you much success with this book. It's a beautiful product. I thank you for Thank it. you a lot. Yeah, thank you a lot. I will hope that it's, yeah, turning around the world. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. Our, our vegan nephew um, eats that nut loaf when we're having turkey at Christmas. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's very good. Very good. Yeah, very good. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to say goodbye now, and um, I'm, I hate to say goodbye because we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we have to get along to other interviews. So take care and much success. Thank you a lot. Thank you for having me. Have a nice afternoon. And, you too. Um, yeah. We've got Chef Michael Antonosi, who we've talked to before. Oh, and he's a delight. And uh, he has a chocolate company. I mean, geographically, we're going to shift a little to South America, although it's an American company. There's Q-A-L, 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 chocolates. And it's very special, especially what he's doing currently with his plans. This is the Jeff Michael. Oh, it's been quite a while since we last talked, Chef Michael Antonorsi, about you and your company, Chihuahua Chocolates. Uh, and you've been very busy uh, since we talked in 2013. So I want you to bring us up to date. First of all, uh, welcome to On the Menu again. It's good talking to you again. And secondly, um, it, could we start off in case uh, our listeners are new to the company. Could you give us a brief idea of how it started and its backstory? Sure. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the menu again, <laughs> and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, well, we started in 2002. Actually, we're turning 20 years this year, so we, oh my. we're now becoming a fully adult company, having gone through all the different stages from toddlers to you know teenagehood and everything. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, from, I'm originally from Venezuela. Uh, my background, I'm a biomedical engineer, but I went to Paris uh, at my 36 with my daughters and my wife, and I uprooted them from Venezuela to become a chef. And then I came to California. I went to UCSD, and I, I really felt connected with San Diego, and I wanted to start a business now in chocolate, using Venezuelan cacao as a core part of the ingredients. And uh, so we started kind of small in a little store in Encinitas, and we always wanted to create a business out of this. 
as entrepreneurs, and we started growing the company slowly, and uh, now we have a factory in Carlsbad. Um, as a company, we made many mistakes, of course, uh, and just like every entrepreneur, and it's a great learning curve. And one of the biggest ones was even the choice of our name, which is Chu Wow. Now, I had no idea that putting three vowels together was so hard in the English-speaking language. <laughs> So, so we've been called Chao, Cho, Chi, Chihuahua, but you know, very seldomly Chihuahua. So, uh, a great way to remember the name is, you know, you chew and say Wow, Chew Wow, and we like to say right. it's not a Wow, it's not a Chihuahua. So, part of that learning, hopefully, that becomes a, a pretty happy accident and becomes a name that everybody now knows how to pronounce and will never forget. <laughs> did, did you see a picture of the, the, the dog that won the ugliest dog in, in the world? Oh no, I haven't seen it. What's the name? It's, it's, kind of it's a, a a Chihuahua mix, and oh. and I, I mean it, it. It's hard to imagine, but it, it truly is the ugliest dog I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God! It's like they say, it's a face only a mother can love. <laughs> is it? Oh, I mean, you know, it's called the name of the dog is Happy Face, which oh, is okay. pretty funny. <laughs> it, it has its tongue out forever, and it got some kind of weird mixed breed on its fur, you know, so it has a, like oh, a wow. mohawk. <laughs> it's really the ugliest dog. <laughs> Anyhow, so, so much, but it's, it's a chihuahua mix, so. Um, yeah, so we are chihuahua. You love stuff at chihuahua. Yeah, chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, you're, the pictures of, of your uh, factory in in um, California, um, you you say, you say that, that that this is a joy place, a joyful place. Yeah, we call um, it a joy factory because, you know, there's, you know, for the first nine years or so, we were actually struggling. You know, we, we couldn't figure out, uh, you know, we were trying to compete and trying to do all the things right and try to get this and that. But every time you get into your mind and you start really, you know, looking for outside answers to solve the problems and you forget what you're all about, then you struggle. And we did that for a long time until we finally – uh, understood what we were all about. So, for instance, our first, our, our original tagline was unusual, unexpected, and delicious. And then again, <laughs> I didn't know that for the American market, unusual and unexpected was not a welcome thing. Delicious, yes, but unusual and unexpected, oh, no. Oh, yeah, that's true. So then so I started learning that because it was not about me, it was all about the market. But then one day I realized when I was really finally observing the people's reaction is that how much joy they feel when they eat the chocolate. So then I had this aha moment, and I decided that the company does not have a mission but has an intention. And the intention is to share joy with the world through deliciously engaging chocolate experiences. So uh, the whole idea of this is that as we're in this, this intention of sharing joy, we're not competing with anybody, and we're here just facilitating an opportunity for joy. So uh, when you put a chocolate, that's why our combinations are fun and, 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 and unique in many ways, and uh, and bring you all these multi-textured, multi-layered flavors that uh, ideally is that, you know, you stop your life for a second and you go into yourself and you have a moment of joy and hopefully also a moment of joy that you want to share with others because I feel that's so powerful, you know, sharing joy to other people with other people is, is a fundamental energy that we need to have more of, especially nowadays. So. So that, oh, that was yeah. about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, is, I had this, this, uh, this, this uh, understanding, and it completely made everything work from then on. So our flavor profiles, instead of being unusual and unexpected, they started being more familiar. 
and then using ingredients, even though it was not the way to mix normally, you don't have potato chips in chocolate, but you know about potato chips and you know about chocolate. So if you can, it's not so risky. And then when you try it out, you go, oh, my God, yes, I got the texture, I got the savory side of the potato chips, and I got the sweet chocolate. And so we started creating a lot of those uh, more familiar flavor profiles, but with our unique, authentic chihuahua twist. And, uh, and, of course, always looking to elicit a moment of joy. And so when we started the factory here about now, it's going to be six years ago, <clears throat> um, we, we have a big sign in front of the factory that says joy. And everything is about crafting with joy. And when you walk in, everybody's laughing. Everybody's really smiling. Everybody really enjoys. Now, we're working with chocolate. Clearly, that is much better than working with, I don't know, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, sardines or something. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's already a great platform. And... Uh, and on top of that, I don't know if you know the botanical name of chocolate or cacao. The botanical name is Theobroma cacao. And Theobroma means in ancient Greek, food of the gods. Theo is God uh-huh. and, and, and Broma is food. So, so chocolate is the food of the gods. So if we have the food of the gods that we can play with and then we can offer it to our customers, we are in a good, way, in a, in a good direction to have a, you know, the possibility to offer an opportunity for joy. So everything revolves around that, and and uh, and it also actually created an interesting thing because to be able to share joy, you have to have joy. So it became the platform of the culture of the company. So so you we are all focused on trying to figure out what blocks our joy, what makes us bitter, what makes us resentful, what what are the blocks that are not allowing us to fully express our joy. So that is kind of like the core uh, structure of our cultural uh, um, the culture in the company. And so it's a fascinating process of everybody just figuring out how to present themselves in the best way possible, you know, expressing their joy, and then, of course, imprinting that in the chocolate that goes out. And then when people get the piece of chocolate, they, they connect with that and they share it with the loved ones. You know, the husbands can get out of their doghouse easily and freely. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's got a lot of power. <laughs> and if you're sucked in, you can buy three bars at the same time. Of course, and, and a dozen. <laughs> so it doesn't go that, bad. So you, you stock them away the so that nobody finds it, or maybe not. <laughs> no, I, I, lo- I fell in love with the carrot cake one. Yeah, he's, he's oh. never liked carrot cake, but he, all of a sudden he's in love with your chocolate bar, this carrot cake. Yeah, the carrot cake is, is a fun one, and I did not expect that, that recognition, but I'm very happy to receive it. Uh, so, you know, in April of 2020, when COVID hit, uh, we did this kind of like funny social media thing for April Fool's Day. And uh, they put in like, you know, a carrot cake chocolate bar with 21 carrots, you know, like a carrot gold, kind of 21 carrots in the bar and stuff. And it just created so much uh, a reaction. And people were really believing that it was true because it was a true, good, very good April Fool's Day thing. And, and then I'm like, oh, my God, now what are we going to do? So I, I found this, this uh, golden chocolate that has caramelized sugar and caramelized milk. So on its own, the chocolate tastes like dulce de leche. So it has this nice caramely flavor. And I started thinking, oh, that could be a platform. So then I mixed in the ingredients of carrot cake. You know, I have ca- dried organic carrots. I have walnuts. I have nutmeg, cinnamon, stuff like that. And, and, and I was so surprised. It just came out really tasting like a carrot cake. And it even tastes, even if you, if you pay attention, it even brings you a little bit of that sensation of the cream cheese frosting. So I was super excited <laughs> because it's one of those kind of mind twisting things where you really have to pay attention and all of a sudden you feel like you're eating one thing and you're having another experience 
And even though it's a chocolate bar, I don't think it, it's even a chocolate bar. It's more like a dessert because it doesn't have uh-huh. any of the bitter yes, sides yes, of chocolate. Right. It's got all the sweet caramel sides of it. So you can consider it more than more like a portable carrot cake treat without flour and gluten. So it's actually quite perfect, flourless carrot cake. And, and then we got the prize at the Specialty Food Association as the best new uh, uh, candy bar. Yes, which is a, a tough competition. It's, it's a niche that's really crowded, actually. Very crowded, yeah. 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 We, I, was, I was super excited with that. Well, that, that got our attention, of course, right away. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, you, you, I'm trying to remember back to when you started up, um, what kinds of flavors you had. But there was always quality. You know, that that seems to be one of your things. You always insist on quality. Yeah, you know, being a chef, I I'm not really a, a food scientist or, or uh, you know, I can't really design formulas. They're all recipes. So they, they use the original ingredients in everything. Like the carrot cake has just the original ingredients of a carrot cake. It doesn't have carrot cake flavoring or anything like that. So so that is already a great way to express the truthness of uh, of, of the product, right? Then our chocolate is, is, is uh, uh, you know, slow-roasted cacao beans, has Venezuelan cacao at its core, which is very hard to get. And then it brings that kind of like more a fruity chocolate profile taste. You know, it's not so horizontal, not so much like cacao, like a chocolate pudding. It's more like a really uh, more, has a little bit more acidity to it, so it brings a little bit of those fruit notes, but with a depth of flavor that is also very lingering. So it's a much more rich experience. So, so the quality of the ingredients and the quality of the chocolate and the handcrafting of what we make is what how we can control everything because we're not industrialized. Everything is in a small 200-pound batch, you know, where we're mixing the ingredients. It's uh, recipe-based, and uh, and we have a lot of lovely people, uh, you know, pouring their love into. Oh, they those all things. look happy in the, on your website. <laughs> they're always so happy. Yeah, you know, it, it, actually, I go out there to charge myself. You know, when I when I when I when I go around and say hi to all of them and get in there, and I just come out fully charged because they just have this natural life of, you know, joy of life that it's just Do you think something has to do with the fact that they're not in Venezuela anymore? Uh, Pardon me? Do you think some of the joy is because they're not in Venezuela anymore? Uh, (laughs) No. Well, you know, they're they're mostly from from Mexico, most of the people that work in the factory production. And, And, yeah, you know, I don't think... I think the joy is just as, more for hanging around with good people and, and being alive and not being concerned and having a good job and sharing and having chocolate available for them anytime. <laughs> well, you know, we all miss our, our home country, so it's, uh, nobody wants to leave their country. And, uh, and Venezuela is right now in a pr- pretty bad situation. So, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, more, 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 but, you more, know, maybe people listening in might not know that because we talked about this before we started the interview, but you are originally from Venezuela. Yes, I'm originally from Venezuela, and uh, I came to the U.S. to study biomedical engineering way back in the 80s. And then I went back, and then I worked in computer networking and telecommunications until I was able to go to France and become a chef. And that's where I really switched from technology to really follow my passion, And because uh, and, all I could think is just cooking all the time. So I did that. I worked in a two-Michelin-star restaurant in Paris, and then I decided to come back to San Diego and then do something with chocolate. Because, you know, one of the finest cacaos comes from Venezuela, so I wanted to bring that. And it has become very difficult, but it is still available, and we still have it as a core ingredient in our so you, But you don't use Venezuelan cacao? 
Yes, we do. In our in our in our in our, in our uh, the chocolate that's made for us in the United States has Venezuelan cacao in its core. So it's it's, it's one of the key things in there. Okay, so it's a mix of cacao from Africa. Yeah, we have we have it's all it's all fair, fair trade cacao, and it's a mix of cacao beans. And we make sure that Venezuelan cacao is part of it because it's what gives that little tart fruitiness to the to the uh, the final product. And this is yeah. what I like to express in our chocolate. But you don't work directly with the uh, cacao producers in Venezuela. We don't. We're, we're not a bean-to-bar company. So uh, as a chef, I, I combine ingredients. And chocolate is sort of like our platform. It's like the main ingredient. So we use, for instance, we use 60% chocolate for the dark chocolate, which is, is, is a, a high enough percentage to give this depth flavor and intensity, but it's not too high so that it doesn't really live with other ingredients because we like to combine them with things. So we have uh, one of our top products is a s'mores bar. So it has the marshmallows and graham crackers and the chocolate. Uh, we have a pretzel and toffee. So we have the firecracker. is one of the most iconic ones. And uh, so we want to make sure that every ingredient uh, shows, and it's not none of them are overwhelming. So yeah, we, we so, haven't tried the firecracker yet. Have you have it? No, no, but I'll get I'll get the. Yeah, he he liked the honeycomb bar. And what's in the firecracker bar? Well, so the, the firecracker, once you get it, you have to try it. And, and unfortunately, we don't have enough room in the packaging to really tell the people how to consume it. But ideally, what you do is you just grab this chocolate bar. You, you snip a piece off, and you put it in your mouth, and you bite only once. You kind of crack it in half, and then you let it sit there in your tongue, and you push it against oh, wow. your palate. Right, and then right. you let it melt, and you just be, just take your time, and you, you know, wiggle around, and you rub it against your palate, and you pay attention, and then you do it again a little bit, and you pay attention, and you do it more, and as it melts, it starts creating a whole uh, experience. It's like a multi-sensory surround sound experience, and then, and but you have to be really slowly because if you start chomping and, and, and biting on it, you crush all the. It has uh, popping candy, so you want to let the popping candy, or the, it's called also like carbonated sugar crystals. You want to let them pop on their own. You don't want to crush them with your teeth. Otherwise, it's just a big crunch, but uh-huh. then you don't really get the autonomous experience of the process. So, so you want to just kind of, you know, just move it with your tongue, uh, push it against the palate, rub it, and feel it. And as it melts and melts and melts and melts, it starts creating this concert in your mouth. So. It's really, it has to be consumed like that, so really slowly. And it is a moment of meditation. You're stuck there for a good 30 seconds, one minute, and you're, like, completely uh, focused on the experience and what's happening. And, uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Well, you know, you, you were one of these chocolatiers. I found that for some reason, I have no idea why, but chocolatiers are really interesting people. I mean, a lot of people switch later even in their life than you did um, to, from something else to being a chocolatier. I mean, what, what is the attraction? I mean, um, well, like Askenosi was a trial lawyer. Because, hmm? Well, you know, it, just from the cacao on, you know, uh, it, it's just such a magical product. Being food of the gods, you know, the, bot- the botanists, they didn't know how to call this magical thing. It has so many chemical components and so many wonderful things that connect with all your, your you know, uh, um, your uh, <coughs> different uh, sensors in your body make you feel good, you know, your oxytocin, your, uh, your uh, dopamine, everything that kind of goes into, into feeling good. So it's really a great connection. So it creates this passion 
to be related to chocolate. And then, you know, it's very unctuous because chocolate also moves around body temperature. So you put it in your mouth, and then the body temperature is enough to melt it slowly. So, so it's not something that comes cold, shouldn't be cold, and it's too warm, then it melts and actually burns at a very high, low temperature. So it is there around your body temperature. It gives you this incredible experience. It's, uh, it's fascinating to work with in so many layers. So it really elicits a lot of passion. You can go all the way like from the why, farm. Why is it so interesting to work with chocolate? I mean, I, when I did the, wrote a cookbook, and, and this one uh, chef who was a, uh, um, a pastry chef, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand this whole thing of tempering chocolate and doing all. It was so complicated. You know, you had to use judgment at every point. And, yes, and it's, what is it's, it? very, it's very involved because of that. You know, chocolate, you know, it's crystals. The way you go through the tempering curve, because if it's, uh, if it's over-tempered or under-tempered, it, it has different structures. And, and what happens is those different structures react differently in your mouth. So when your chocolate is tempered, all the good crystals are lined up, and you have a nice snappy chocolate that is nice and shiny. And when you put it in your mouth, it melts evenly. If you have a untempered chocolate, it's all crumbly and gray, and you put it in your mouth, and it needs a lot more energy for it to melt, so it feels like you're having something grainy and stuff. Eventually, it melts, and eventually, it feels just as good as the tempered one. So, so the tempering is already a, a science to present you the chocolate in its best possible structure. The, the origins of the cacao give you a variety of genetics that give you such a variety of flavor profiles. So, but just like everything, you know, if you go very industrialized African, mostly African industrialized cacao, it is very flat in flavor. You know, you can you see it in coffee. You have very refined uh, Arabica coffees, and then you have some that are not, you know. And then if you have the Robusta coffee, it's like made of, you know, it's just, it's just toasted stuff, right? So... So you can get all those nuances by the different types of genetics. So there's so many layers around cacao, from the growth, the genetics, where the origin, just like wines, you know, the conditions where it grows. The fermentation process also activates all these flavors. Yeah, I always forget that about the fermentation, yeah. Yeah, the fermentation is a key part of it, right? So so you have to have, it goes for seven days, and all those acetic acids liberate, and you get this complexity of flavor. Then the roasting is also key because if you over-roast it, then you kind of burn it and it becomes flat. So you want to roast it in the right uh, level. And then you, then you go into the conching, which still liberates. Oh, yeah. And then after that, you temper Tempering is mostly just to structure it so that you can crystallize it, it gets nice and firm, and you can unmold it, and you can have it in bars, in chips, in bonbons, in truffles, in whatever you want. So, so it has all this complexity in the process, but it delivers this, this very – authentic uh, uh, human connection with the earth, you know, because it has all the fats and it has all the depth, earthy notes and some acidity to it, the way I like it. And, and it, I don't know, you know, what's, that's why you put it in everybody's mouth and they smile. It's just this thing. <laughs> Very few people and, and mostly people in their heads that want to make a point and say, I don't like chocolate. I think it's more of a ego position than a reality because chocolate is – yeah, you you might not like to overindulge in it, but it's just something that if it's well done, it only creates joy. Yeah, some some company advertises that um, that a full half of the world loves chocolate, and the other half are lying. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I lo- I love it how how normally the men they take the role of not liking chocolate, but then when the women buy a box of chocolate, then the men are the ones that eat it. 
Oh, yeah. Well, who do you think's eating all this chocolate now? <laughs> Peter. <laughs> well, now, um, there's so many things, so many directions we could go to in this discussion. But, I, um, I mean, I don't know, like, do you know in your head now what you're going to be experimenting with next in terms of the flavor profile of your next production or creation? Well, you know, it's uh, I don't really have such a... Uh, foresight, you know, uh, uh, th- like the way the carrot cake came in, you know, some of them, I like the best, the, those things that come accidentally, that come by things that, that, that come my way, an idea somebody had and thought about us and say, hey, you got to try this ingredient. And, and then it starts creating a story around it. And I start playing in the kitchen and, and, and bring something together. So I have some ideas in my head, but I want to make sure that I'm not just following a particular trend or something. I want to just find something that really lines up with our our authenticity as a company, how we want to reflect uh, that joy of chocolate. So right now, you know, yeah, you know, I can disclose that I'm toying around coffee, something, or something kind of maple something in those, you know, areas. Not quite sure. I want to find a concept that, that is familiar, but I can give it a little twist sure. so that uh, it's surprising, you know, when people eat it and, like, oh, my God. I connect the flavors, but this is like, wow, delivering my perfect, you know. Well, uh, boy, you're an adventurer, too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, now that we've told everybody about um, how wonderful it is, and why don't we mention how they can get it? Well, yeah, well, Chihuahua. of course, you know, online, you know, at chihuahuachocolatier.com. And, uh, is that singular, have, chocolatier? Yeah, chihuahuachocolatier.com. And it's C-H-U-A-O. And uh, uh, in the summer, it's a little tougher. Amazon, we don't do much in Amazon over the summer because uh, it's just uh, they don't have uh, refrigerated warehouses. But from October on to March or so, Amazon does a great partnership with us. We also have a lot of supermarkets like in the East Coast. We are like in Wegmans, uh, Fresh, uh, Fresh Market. In the Midwest, we are right now doing a, a, um, a tour with, uh, with our s'mores bark. Oh, yeah. Bark Lucks in Smorcia and all the Costco's in Midwest. Uh-huh. So, uh, so we have a, it's a beautiful 15 ounce bag, uh, the best. It's so delicious. Just chunky pieces of marshmallows and graham crackers and milk chocolate. It's absolutely addictive. Perfect for the summer. So we have that rotation just now. And, uh, some Whole Foods, a lot of independent stores, uh, airports, you know, uh, have that, uh, have our chocolates. We have a lot in the West Coast also. Um, but I think you know some, some most of the like uh, uh, specialty markets, they will mm-hmm. most likely have it. But they can go to your website and order it online. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. And Anytime. it's C H U O A O, right? Yeah, C H U A O, and then chocolatier. I E R period. Yeah. Dot com. Okay. Very good. Well, you seem to be having a lot of fun with this. We are. You know, it's uh, how can we not? <laughs> it's chocolate. Right. You know, like I sometimes feel a little bit ashamed. Oh, my God, what a lucky strike I have here, working with chocolate, making people happy, making myself happy. You know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good. Well, I'm, glad been, you, been, I'm glad you did. Yeah, I'm glad you ditched, ditched your engineering and turned to chocolate because you have a great product. <laughs> 
Thank Again, you. listeners, it's uh, um, this is we're talking to Michael Antonorsi, uh and his company is really worth investigating. Is Chuwow, spelled C H U O A O C H U A O chocolate. And thank you for talking to us. How many years later, Michael? But I'm glad you we caught up with you. Yeah, it's been a minute, but I'm always here, so call any time. Thank you. Ciao, All right, ciao. Be good. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And for our final episode, um, we're going to be talking to John Chantarasa. And his book is called Ken Chai. So I imagine you realize it's Asian. And this book is uh, hot, hot, hot from the minute it exited the printing press. Um, he is a wonderful conversationalist. Listen to John. Yes, I'm going to start by botching up our next guest's name. It's John Chantarasak or Chantarasak. But the book title I can pronounce is Kin Thai, and it means eat Thai, which we're all more than happy to do. Um, The subtitle of this book is Modern Thai Recipes to Cook at Home, and I'm going to do a quick summarization here. Uh, saying that our guest, John, uh, is a, a trained chef who is um, multicultural, including uh, his mother is um, English or Welsh, um, and and his father is Thai and something else. And he was born in Wales, and he's now in London, and that's where we're going to be talking to him from, or... Um, and, and, He's going to tell us at some point about the restaurant he's going to open in uh, a posh section of London. John, welcome to On the Menu. Let's launch into this. This book is so packed with information. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what, how much I'm going to be able to really cover. Uh, my summation to you earlier was that it's a Thai cookbook, but your, your philosophy of cooking combines... Um, traditional and modern Thai recipes with ingredients from the UK. And and you're going to refine that, I'm sure. Tell us if that's close to the truth. No, that's very, that's, um, that's very close to what the book is really talking about. It's essentially um, a snapshot of my philosophy of the cooking style that I've kind of developed over the last five years so uh, exactly as you stated I'm half British half Thai and I trained in Bangkok and I have cooked Thai cuisine for most of my professional career but when I have been cooking in the United Kingdom um, I try to take the ideas and the flavor profiles of the dishes that I know from Thailand and find ingredients from my domestic British larder or European larder 
to try and mimic those flavor profiles um, so that they still stay true to the to the flavor of the dish that I know from Thailand, but obviously using a much more sustainable practice of sourcing your ingredients um, than flying things over from Southeast Asia. Uh, and that's kind of... Go ahead. And that, and that sort of, yeah, that's sort of what the, the book looks at. Um, and it talks about uh, substitute ingredients, I guess, a fair amount to try and encourage people to be able to try and cook Thai food from wherever lo- their location is and to try and sort of think about what does something, for example, like lime juice hold, it's sour, so that you can use something in your domestic larder instead. Um, and the book is broken down into various chapters. Uh, there's an introduction and then there's a number of chapters about the different regions of Thailand and how the weather... Yeah, uh, I was weather... just looking at that. The, the regions of Thailand, um, they're so different. Um, there's, there's no one national dish of Thailand, is there? I mean, if you followed Thai cooking and other cities of the world, you wouldn't have one clue of the diversity that you find in Thai cooking, would you? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think a lot of people will probably associate a, a certain handful of dishes towards Thailand, and that would exactly. be the kind of the green and red curries and the pad thais, yeah. maybe fish cakes and those kind of things. But mm-hmm. they are actually all kind of central um, region Thai dishes from probably have their ancestral roots in royal Thai cuisine, so the food that the royal palaces would have eaten. But if you were to go to the north, the sort of mountainous, hilly areas of of Thailand, those are not common dishes at all. Um, And likewise in the south, the the climate and the people there dictate a different sort of style of food as as well, maybe closer to the the style of food eaten in neighbouring Malaysia than anything more on the Thai side. So it's, it's really interesting. In my mind, there are kind of four main regions, um, but obviously Thailand is broken down into many different um, sub kind of regions within there, but people kind of talk about it as four main regions. Yeah, and, and of course you, you break down the British Isles. <laughs> yes, <funny>. exactly. <laughs> quite, quite a small island in comparison to anywhere else, but again, I felt when I was, when it felt very natural that after I'd spoken about the sort of main regions of Thailand and what those different areas uh, brought to the sort of culinary table, it kind of made sense to me to then discuss the British Isles to to, to the audience. And, you know, it, not necessarily everyone who reads this book will have, know exactly about what is available in the UK. So I felt that that was quite an important thing for me to state of the things that I particularly like to source from the United Kingdoms and how the different climates sort of dictate those ingredients that we have here in in, in my native country um, and then to sort of allow people to kind of get my viewpoint on um, knowing both the geography of the, of Thailand and how that affects the food and the geography of the UK and how it affects the food. So very much like a fusion-style cuisine, I guess, is, is what I'm cooking these days. Why, why don't why don't we talk about rhubarb since it's so, so close to Peter's heart from growing up in the in the neighbourhood where rhubarb is king or queen? Or yeah, so 
So rhubarb, yeah, I mean. And you put it to you put it to work in somewhat unusual fashion. Yeah, it's it's actually showcased in one of the dishes. Um, again, actually a dish that I think a lot more people will be familiar with than not familiar. So it's um, a uh, tom yum, which is essentially uh, hot and sour soup. So traditionally, this soup would be made um, a kind of uh, enriched stock, flavoured and seasoned with things like lime leaves, lemongrass, galangal, uh, lots of chilies, and then um, traditionally would be soured with um, lime juice. So you get that very hot, uh, sour profile to the soup. Um, I very much follow the kind of uh, traditional root of the dish, um, using some of those ingredients like the lemongrass and the lime leaves. But uh, one of the characteristics that I like to tinker with is if we have something that is a, a very obviously British ingredient and has a very close connection to a flavor profile that I, I can, I've tasted from Thailand, then I'll try and use that ingredient so that people can recognize um, the sort of uh, substitution of ingredients that I'm going to go for. So, yeah, Yorkshire... Rhubarb from the Yorkshire Triangle has a very short but much beloved um, season in the UK. And I tend to juice that and use it in replacement to lime juice. So um, make a traditional hot and sour soup, but then uh, the final seasoning comes from rhubarb juice and put fresh rhubarb to it as well. So you get a very sour profile from it. And you also get a nice pink hue to your to your soup, which is a little bit unusual from, from what people have seen before. You know that you know so much about so many things. I never knew that there were different kinds of limes. That the the flavors could be very different. Yeah. So I mean, you remember finger limes, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that that I didn't consider. I mean, he's talking about just straight limes have different. Some have thick skins. Some have thin skins. I don't. I didn't know there was all that going on. I mean, in, in Thailand, um, they actually have uh, many different species of um, citrus fruits, uh, not just your kind of lemon and limes and maybe your grapefruit, but uh, there's a lot of interesting kind of um, citrus fruits that are related to the lime. Uh, you know, so traditionally, it's the lime. Um, it's, it's kind of got a thinner skin and tends to be sort of greeny orange at times. And the fruit, the the juice, sorry, is very, it has a a certain sweetness to it. It's still sour, but it doesn't have that, like, overridingly, raspingly sort of sour bitterness that I would associate with the limes that we have commonly available in the UK, which tend to be sort of Persian limes. But there's... um, Is that the one that I would know, the Persian lime or not? Yeah, I... I think that's the one that's probably more common in the in the U.S. as well, and that's okay. the one that's sort of been cultivated you know, the, now and to travel the, the world. The thing with the lime leaves, somebody, you know, people send us all this stuff all the time, and somebody sent me dried lime leaves. I didn't think they tasted like anything. I, I tried to taste them. They tasted like sawdust, you know, <laughs> I mean, flavor at I would, all. I would actually tend to agree with you there. I, um, oh, good. <laughs> I think it's not, it's not even worth, using them i'd rather admit them from the recipe than use those but it's uh it's it's very common to in in thailand it's very common to find fresh lime leaf it's a little bit harder outside of uh, outside of southeast asia but 
in the UK actually they are like trees are grown in Spain so there's actually quite a readily available source into the UK um, one of the restaurants that I used to work with we had a partnership with a farm in Spain so we used to get boxes sent over to us and they they also sent the fruits when it was the time for for the fruits to come but they're also starting to be grown in the UK now which is fantastic so we we're getting that product is that because the climate's but, getting warmer i mean they're they're doing the yeah. grapes now <laughs> yeah i mean the climate is getting warmer but i think there's also a bit more of a demand for these kind of products in the UK and that's something oh, that i probably. try to work with my suppliers and try and um encourage them to kind of grow some of these ingredients and it's it's not always the easiest conversations to be having because it means that they're probably having to expend a little bit more time and effort and money to get this thing grown but you try and build a relationship with your suppliers that you can possibly see the benefit of being able to grow these things domestically um we tend to have to buy all of it just so to make sure that they will grow them for us but in time and with the restaurant opening these are the kind of things that I'm trying to look to build for the longevity of being able to source more and more things in the UK and to just be able to have these uh, amazing products and amazing ingredients grown domestically um I just think it's a, a more sustainable and a better approach to to our kind of farming yeah another all the said I mean they, if you're going to be cooking Thai um dishes in the UK um you're going to have there's certain certain ingredients you're going to absolutely have to order like online or from overseas because there's nothing approximating that in the British pantry. I would agree correct? and yeah I would agree it's it's very hard to make a curry paste without chilies and lemongrass yeah. galangal. Oh lemongrass um, I'll tell you I have had a really horrible association with lemongrass uh, somebody left a big lemongrass plant on my front porch. Um, it was a, from a Philippine restaurant. And um, you can't, in Pittsburgh, which is where we are, you can't just leave that out all winter with the snow. Oh, no. <laughs> so I would lug this thing in every single fall. <laughs> it would winter over looking like it was going to die at any minute. Let's let's quick let's quickly state for the record that the person who humped the <laughs> lemongrass in and in and out with the seasons was, was was a different part of the partnership. Well, <laughs> I, 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 eventually it just got to be a size, and I didn't see. I mean, I could just go to the store and buy lemongrass. You know? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you really have to choose your battles with those kind of things, exactly. don't you? And, I I, it, I, I, described, I described her as committing lemongrass aside. There's a character we must introduce into this story because he, he certainly has a place somewhere and, and part of that is ha- having a famed Thai restaurant in, in London of all places and then later on having a fine Thai restaurant in Bangkok that's the erstwhile Mr. David Thompson. And I think you had something of a connection with David during your career. He studied under him in Bangkok. Yeah. I, he so I've, with him. I've had some run-ins with David in my time. He's a very uh, knowledgeable chef, great guy. Um, you know, I, I really feel that 
uh, Thai cuisine wouldn't be where it is today without the yeah. input that he's had on on the world with that, which has been incredible. And you know, also incredible that he's a non-native that sort of took the yeah, and on is. to leaps and bounds. But I always I have categories as chefs, and I put him in my philosopher chef category. I would I would probably agree with that. He is a very whimsical thinker, and uh, he's, quite, he's quite mad. <laughs> he's definitely a character. I like him a lot. He's got a lot to say on the subject, and he's, you know, he's very passionate about what he's done and what he's brought to the table. And he's, he's allowed many, many great chefs come through the roots beneath him and and go on to sort of celebrate the cuisine. And there's other chefs that I know, both in Thailand and outside, that have gone on to open great restaurants that are representing the cuisine in in such a great fashion, and that's all happened because of people like David. So, yeah, he's he's a great guy. Yeah. Now, you have, uh, I think, created this idea that you could really build a pantry of ingredients suitable for cooking all these recipes in your book. But you have to admit that it's a pretty long list. (laughs) It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely not an afternoon job. But I think what I've tried to do is, what what I really wanted to do with the book is sort of showcase the breadth of the Thai cuisine. I mean, by no means is it an exhaustive list of recipes in there or covers everything from Thai Thai cuisine. I mean, if you if you want to get a very big deep dive, I would definitely recommend reading David Thompson's book. That's, uh, that's the encyclopedia <laughs> on the subject. But um, I really wanted to be able to at least give a breadth of showcasing what is available and kind of open people's eyes to the fact that it's not just this very sort of black and white cuisine. Um, and then in doing that, I wanted to try and encourage as many people as possible to cook the cuisine. And I, I know this might sound contradictory, but I felt the best way to do it was to just explain everything that I'd learned in the last sort of 10 years of my time cooking professionally, but distill it down into useful bite-sized bits of information and if that means that you should have X, Y, and Z ingredients in your stock cupboard to be able to cook most of the book, then that's what I've kind of said that you should be trying to achieve. Um, but I think the approach that I'm trying to encourage people to do is pick maybe four or five recipes that you might want to cook over the space of a month, have a look at hopefully what ingredients are required from a store cupboard, and there should be a fair amount of overlap. I've tried to choose recipes that use the same sort of base uh, amount of ingredients and then you know hopefully over time if you're choosing four or five recipes a month you know at the end of a year you might have a very well sourced cupboard and a, a, a nice bit of knowledge about cooking the cuisine then and you give you some confidence to um to explore it more and, and to cook from the book more this is yeah. exciting these recipes are really exciting uh, like we were talking about rhubarb here's langoustine and rhubarb hot and sour soup. Now, I mean, that would be enough to tempt you into the kitchen, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a prime example of two two ingredients that are kind of very British. So langoustines, they're sort of our, our king prawns of the Scottish Isles. Um, again, a very sort of loved, beloved ingredient of mine. 
Um, I, I try not to use things like tiger prawns that come from overseas and right, sort of right, Madagascar right. sort of area. And then, obviously, like we discussed before, the the wonderful rhubarb from Yorkshire. Again, just a very loved ingredient in the in the British shores. And actually, a lot of time it's used in sweet capacities, I'd say, um, in the UK. So it's quite nice to be able to showcase it yeah. in a different light and to use it in a savoury dish. Um, but normally in, in Thailand, it's very common to sort of get a hot and sour soup with, with tiger prawns. So that's kind of where the idea of thinking about that dish and the flavours that I recognise, but then trying to associate some very unique ingredients to the British Isles um, to kind of get the same sort of end effect and same flavour profiles on the dish. Hopefully people were, you know, they hopefully people, when they try it, they sort of say, oh, yeah, I recognise this. It's a very sort of shellfishy, seafoody flavoured soup with, I flavour it with chilies and lime leaf. I can't get away from the fact that those are kind of sort of key ingredients to add, to add that aromatic quality to the soup. But then with the rhubarb and the, and the langoustines, I think hopefully people will kind of get that connection, but then also say, no, but this tastes very typically Thai to what I sort of associate those flavour profiles to. Can you explain this dish to me? <laughs> Hazelnut candied meat on red flesh plum called ma or yes. oh, so it actually means galloping horses um ah. i have no reason i have no no actual knowledge of why it's called that i think it's one of those very sort of typical thai dishes that the the dish kind of gets it tied to these sort of fairy tale names and no one had any sort of reasons why but it's a dish that I first encountered from David actually at his restaurant Nam in Bangkok and it's a sort of it's actually a very typical style royal snack that um, encases the sweet and sour a uh, sweet and salty and savory flavor profiles of a savory style dish so this is something that's actually very in favour with kind of ancient style royal Thai cuisine, using a lot of sweetness but in a savoury dish. So essentially, it's a, it, it takes meat products. Uh, the ones that we used to make in Nam, I think, was um, ground pork, ground um, prawns, and uh, I think it was pork and prawns actually. And we used to cook these proteins down, but in a lot of palm sugar so they sort of candied and then you'd flavor it with things like coriander root garlic white peppercorn um and then and then nuts and you could make a sort of candied meat mixture uh and then once that cooled down it was malleable so you could roll it into a kind of marble shape and we used to serve it on um very fresh um seasonal uh pineapple so very very sweet delicious pineapple with this kind of salty umami um also quite sweet and nutty meat paste i guess and then a little bit of chili so that's a, that's something that every single diner used to get as an amuse-bouche when they came to okay. Nam. and uh it was something that i it was kind of a revelation for me i guess in that i'd never sort of eaten thai food like that before and i found it incredibly fascinating that that sort of balance between yeah, well, I thought the and savory. Was fascinating, yeah. um, and um so it's, it's kind of like my tribute to that dish that that david sort of made very famous at nam um 
Uh, and, it, and again, you know, pineapples aren't, aren't exactly a local uh, fruit from the UK. So just try to use something a bit more British. And the, the red flesh plums are, are a, certain yeah. bre- a certain variety that we get in a nice springtime. And they have like a nice sort of juicy, um, refreshing quality to them that sort of reminds me of when I first had that paste on the, uh, the pineapple in Bangkok. So it's sort of like Is a little tribute to David, actually. <laughs> Is there a significance to the different colors of the different pages? It's a really beautiful book. Yeah, so actually, um, the designer, Daniel New, he's based in Australia, and he that was his idea. So we had the book just laid out with um, photos and, and all the text just on white pages, and then it actually kind of, coincides with the cover and the artwork in between so it's the cover and the beautiful. artwork Which yeah it's the essence of thai food anyhow i mean that colorful like that that's kind of what we were going for and it was a it's a good friend of mine kim hilliard she painted the cover and all the artwork for me and she has been a very key part of the journey with um my restaurant anglo thai that we're opening um, yeah, before we go, you need to tell our listeners about opening this restaurant. And when. I will do. So just to finish off on the colors, so yeah, Kim painted the book, but she's also kind of painted all of our um, branding to date. So it felt very uh, applicable, well, not applicable, it felt very relevant for her to sort of do the colored artwork for the book. And actually the brief was just to, make it colourful like the Thai cuisine, and I think she absolutely smashed it out of the park for us. She exactly hit it, <laughs> hit it But right. um, yeah. as, you, as you would have seen with the book, the different chapters are broken that broken down with a piece of her sort of coloured artwork for each section, so there's kind of curries and soups, etc. And it was yeah. Daniel's idea to sort of play off of one of those colours and, and make the pages that that's, that corresponding chapter a sort of different kind of watercolour and when I saw the first draft of that I just thought it looked beautiful and it really sort of it really jumped off the page of what I was trying to achieve with kind of making people see how vibrant the cuisine was and trying to entice people to really want to delve into the book and cook the recipes from the book so that's that's kind of where that started from um the cookbook I mean it's I've only this is my first one so it was a very uh, interesting um, journey and uh, it really opened my eyes into seeing how you work with a number of different key people during the process oh, yeah. and Daniel and Kim really easy, sort of yeah they, they it's a collaborative effort should I say but it's lovely to see it all come together in the final kind of finished right. pages I've never understood how really people well. right I've never understood how some of these uh, cookbook authors write 30 and 40 books I mean I really can't yeah, I mean, I don't think one I've got that much for in me. There. I couldn't get that one. Um, so as I said, though, before we stop this, and we could go on for quite some time with this, but I, I wanted our listeners to know that you are, in fact, going to open a, a restaurant in London. That's correct. And yeah. go ahead. Just give us a few details of where, when. So... Um, the restaurant is called Anglo Thai. That's sort of the concept that I've been cooking events and pop-ups and collaborations all over the world, really, for the last few years. Not so much in the last two and a half years because of, I think, certain factors that we all know about. But, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the restaurant, again, it 
is very much focused on the two sides of my heritage. So uh, Thai-inspired recipes, but using seasonal uh, local produce as much as possible. Very much um, the things that I talk about in the book, but kind of going a lot more into the next level, I think. And that's sort of what I've developed over the last four or five years when I've been cooking this this style of Thai food, and it's something I feel very passionate about. But I'm opening the restaurant with my my wife, Daziri. She is a, she's a sommelier, so she's in charge of the, the beverages program for us, and we have a very big fondness for, for wine, so that will be a big focus for the restaurant. And, um, yeah, we're just going through the legal process on our site at the moment, which is uh, quite central. I think we'd probably say sort of Fitzrovia, uh can't exactly say where the site is we haven't announced it yet but very central um and we are aiming for very early next year for that opening but if we can make it happen before then we'd love that but just being realistic with where the world is at the moment and the build that we still need to do it's probably looking like very early next year well we certainly hope that when the time comes we can go and and visit you isn't that true Robin? you bet that would be amazing. I'd love to welcome you guys and obviously cook for you and you can really try the food firsthand. And you'll have to come during rhubarb season so I can, can make you the hot and sour food. You bet. I mean, of course, you, you might know that the garden, what I killed off was all of our rhubarb. <laughs> I'm not much of a dab hand in the garden myself, so I don't know. I think it's there. way overrated, to tell you the truth. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot it's, of hard it, work. Think, some things need to be left to the experts, and it's one thing that exactly. I definitely don't 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 put my hands up for being an expert in is gardening. I think that you know, as a chef, you sort of talk about the ingredients that you use, and you have to yeah. sort of always be so thankful for the amazing people that are out there growing things for you, or out in the sea catching things, or rearing livestock. It's just amazing the work that these guys and women do for you, and um, you know. The, the food that I produce wouldn't be the same without the work that those guys do from the very beginning. So, yeah, it's amazing to, to work with people like that. Well, John, it's been a pleasure, and um, I'm, I'm sure you have much success. It's gotten a lot of good press already. Um, you know, I was very insistent on getting a review copy of it. So, and getting an oh, amazing. So, yeah, so it's gotten great reviews. And it's quite an achievement and and much success with your restaurant and hopefully we'll be able to come and visit. So Amazing. until well, thank then thank you very much for having me. <laughs> thank you. That's about it. I must say John was talking to us from the UK, so it really was kind of a, a, a multinational interview day. Um that does it for us and so until next week, I'm going to say bye-bye.